I invite you to have a seat. Also, I want to just let you know, uh, I'm glad that you're here. My name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church, and it's really good to see you this morning. Um, I want to just jump right into our sermon this morning, to our text. Uh, just, but before I do, I want to say this. We are now entering into uh, a time of the year where it may seem um, like it's been a little redundant to cons- constantly be going to the Word every single week. Now, maybe this is the first year that you've begun a reading plan. I know by this time in the year, it's, there's, the temptation is high to, to kind of give up. And I want to just encourage you, if that's been you, I'm going to draw you back in. And just encourage you to be a part of this reading plan. God is already working and doing some great things in our church's life. And so I want to encourage you to, to plug back into that. It's not too late. Uh, if you haven't started, to start even this morning. As we begin reading through uh, the, the, the Psalms this morning, I pray that you'll be encouraged. If you're curious on what the reading plan is, you can find that in the loop this morning. It truly is how you stay in the know around here. And so there's my encouragement for you today. It was all clear now, though. Nothing was hidden. Every single thing had been exposed. The show was over. He had been found out. He'd messed up big time. He even tried to to cover it up. Yes, but when he did that, it only got worse. Now everyone knew. Everyone knew. What was he to do now? Where was he to go? What was he to say? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that situation where uh, everything about you was exposed? The worst parts of you on your worst day laid bare, nothing hidden. Seemingly everybody looking on at your life. What's to be done in moments like these? Perhaps our greatest fear in life is that we'll be found out for who we really are. That people will see us on our worst day. And what's even worse than that is that God already knows who we are. And that nothing truly can be hidden from God. Our our man King David was in this place. That exact place. Everything laid bare. Everything seen. The worst that he had ever done or been a part of was for everybody to see. And worst of all, God... I confronted him about it. Today's passage in Psalm 51, it speaks to this. King David had intentionally gone to the wrong place to look at the wrong woman and then summoned her to himself, almost like rape in a sense. He impregnates her, and after this, he has her husband killed in an effort to cover all this up. God had seen it all. Some time had passed, almost a year, and he had thought he had gotten away with it. He had thought he had done an effective job on covering it all up, and yet... God sends Nathan the prophet to David to reveal to him that nothing was hidden and to pull out into the light everything that he had tried to hide. So in a classic move, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he, and he reads him the story. He feeds it to him that there's a man that lives in King David's kingdom that is quite uncivilized guy he has many sheep and yet he steals and serves for dinner his neighbor's only lamb he serves it to a guest that lamb that he stole was actually not even livestock it was a pet with a name maybe sleeping in the home and this neighbor steals it he feeds it to his guest when David hears about this story that that Nathan's feeding to him he's in he's in he's furious he's enraged and he demands to have this man brought before him, even to relieve him of his head. Nathan looks at him and says, in his mind, I've got him. He took the bait, game, set, match. The trap is now sprung. What, is, what does Nathan say? He said, it's you, King David. It's you. You're that man. This is interesting for us this morning because just a few weeks, weeks ago, we looked at David, this great giant slayer, right? Almost as if he could do no harm. He walks on water and, and he, got, he has auto aim with his slingshot. He leads the, the people of God into victory. That was two weeks ago. And last week, we looked at this great philanthropist keeping his prov- promises to, to even those who wouldn't know any different, to an old friend, Jonathan. 
And if we're not careful, we lift David up to a place that he's not meant to be, to a, to a shelf he's not meant to sit on. This morning, we see David as the man, as Nathan says. But he's the sinful man, the man whose sins had found him out. And, and just so you know, this is the typical habit of sin, to find you out. There's no sin that, that will be hidden for long. This is a promise that God makes to us. So we see David this morning in a bit of a different light. And he's faced with some alternatives here. He has two. He can run from God and attempt to continue to, sh- to cover his sins. Or he can run to God and he can, f- can-, can confess his sins. And truthfully, these are your options as well this morning. This is the, these are the two laid before you as well. You may not be in the same situation where you've been found out. Where everything is obvious to everyone else. But the, I would submit to you that the worst thing that you could have done to you is that God would find you out. And indeed, he has found you out. The Bible makes clear that there is not a man or woman or a child here this morning or on the face of this earth that is not faced with this right now. At this very fork in the road, what will you do? Will you run from God or will you run to God? I'm happy to report to you this morning that that David actually does the latter. David runs to God as God has pursued him and called him to repentance. David runs to God. This morning we actually have a unique opportunity to step into the life of David and to step into his mind and see what, what he was dealing with and what he was thinking and how he moved forward here. Psalm 51 is really a prayer of David to God, which he wrote after Nathan had confronted him about his sin. And so step with me into the mind of David, if you will, as we read Psalm 51. It'll be on the screens if you don't have a copy on your person. Would you follow along with me? The Bible says in Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in the whole burnt offering. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, this passage serves us well. As we understand, hear, and see an example of what true confession looks like. So we pray that as we look at this text... I will understand clearly on a deeper level than we have when just even just five or, or ten minutes ago on how we are to approach you as a people, as your people. God, we pray that those of us among, among this room that have a tendency to run from you, God, that we would see the foolishness in that. that we would sense the calling of your spirit to repent of our sins to confess them to you and to reach out our arms to receive the forgiveness that will follow. 
We pray that these things be done not in our name, but in the name of the one who made it all possible, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This this morning, as we look at this passage, I just want to share with you that it gives us a true picture of what confession and repentance actually look like. And it holds for us the base components as well as, we, as it demonstrates a, a, a proper progression in the life of a Christian. There's some special nuances here that I want to pull out to you, for you this morning. But as we do, I wanna, I wanna, as we begin, I want to just give you an, uh, an overview of this text. In verses 1 through 2, it shows us a bold request. David makes a bold request to God. Verses 3 through 6, we see a genuine confession from David genuinely confesses to his sins. And we'll understand as we look at David's confession the components that are necessary for confession. As we move on, we'll see the anticipated salvation that that David was anticipating, recognizing that since he had asked for it, that God would indeed give it. David goes on to offer a promised promised response in 13 to 17. And ultimately, at the end, we'll see this. That God receives a result that he is delighted in. The delightful result. As we we walk through this passage this morning, I I believe that we'll see this overall, that while running from God and covering up our sin is natural, it only leads to death. As we naturally desire to run from God and to cover our sin, it only leads to death. But when we run to God, as he's invited us to do, and we confess our sin, that that alone brings salvation. And listen to this, church. God delights in that. He delights when his people repent of their sin and turn to him. Imagine that. Imagine hearing somebody that you care about. Imagine hearing something that they really enjoy, that they delight in, that they relish in. Don't you make a mental note. If you love that person, don't you make a mental note of that. And on their birthday or whenever you, you think, I'll do this for this one person because they delight in it. If we'll do that for a brother or sister here in this world, how much more should we be called to do that for our God who delights in the repentance of his people? So keep that in mind as we jump into it this morning. Let's get started by looking at verses 1 through 2, a bold request. Here David begins pleading with God to wash him, to purify him, and thereby accept him. It's a prayer of repentance Prayer of repentance, of turning from sin and turning to God. David makes this appeal for mercy based on God's steadfast love. It's important that you catch that. David makes this appeal of forgiveness, of blotting of sin, based on the mercy that he knows God will have for him. And he makes that appeal for mercy based on God's steadfast love for him. Look there in verse 1. The word for mercy is the language, by the way, of a stranger. That may seem a little odd to you. It does to me. It's like a destitute man on the street asking if he can borrow or have $20. You have no part with that person. You don't even know who they are, and yet they ask you for mercy. This is the word that David's using right here. Show me mercy, God. There's a paradox here because in that same sentence that he asks for mercy, in the place of a stranger, we see the word said which is the Hebrew word for covenant faithfulness, covenant kindness or love for his people. So it's this paradox. David, as if he's a stranger with no part, with no no claim to anything from God, says, show me mercy, God, Yahweh, my covenant father. It sounds like the, the, the prodigal son as he calls out to his father. He says, Father... I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's that same paradox. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. This is what David is saying here. I'm not worthy to be your son. And yet he boldly approaches God. He makes mention of this covenant faithfulness of, his, of Yahweh. He requests him for mercy. And he does that with boldness. Father, I've sinned. I've failed you. You don't fail, God. You're the unchanging God, and I'm the ever-changing man. You, you love me because of your faithfulness to yourself. I'm yours, David says. He boldly lays claim to, the, to God's promised love and faithfulness. 
The question that I'm asking is, who can do that? Maybe you're asking that this morning. Who can actually do that? So we know David's a special character, right? There's not many people that are cutting off Goliath's head. Not many people that are uniting the people of God and bringing them into victory and playing the harp and doing all that jazz and all those things that David's great at. Is it only those folks that can do that? That can lay claim to God's covenant faithfulness to his people? No, it's not. It's not David alone. There's a promise that God has given to mankind, to his, to his people and to all the world. And this is the promise. Whoever lo- uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen to this, verse 18, John chapter 3. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Listen, that's a promise that God has given to us. And he is faithful to that promise that whoever will repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ will be heard, will be forgiven. So who is this promise for? Who can lay claim to God's faithfulness? Anybody. Now you might say, well, that's not necessarily true. There are some who will not. And and while I, I would agree with you, the idea is this, that whoever will repent of their sin, whoever they are, whoever the Lord gives that repentance to, they will repent and will receive forgiveness. Anybody can claim this. Confess our sins and believe that he will forgive us because of Jesus, the Lamb of God. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And church, that should encourage you this morning. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. I addressed the church just now. If, you, if you're here this morning, you say, well, I'm not part of the church. I'm not a Christian this morning. The offer goes out to you as well. If you will repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, he is faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a beautiful thing this morning. And David knew that truth. And so he boldly lays claim to that promise. And he receives it to himself. This promise went out to David long ago that, that his sins could be blotted out. It wasn't until the gospel, it wasn't until the, the life of Christ, we begin to see this fulfillment coming true and how we, we begin to see how it could actually take place, how our sins could truly be blotted out. And it was through the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us then with confidence or with boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help In time of need. Church, find courage this morning. Grab a hold of the boldness of these promises that like David, we can approach the throne of God and receive mercy. In spite of murder, in spite of adultery, in spite of gossip or hatred or selfishness or whatever it is, we can turn from those, confess that to our God, and he will forgive us. This is the beginning of repentance. Believing that we have an advocate with the Father in Jesus Christ. And so boldly and humbly we approach the Lord this morning. We confess our sins and when we do that, he forgives. Confess and he forgives. But what does genuine confession look like? What does confession truly look like? Look with me at verses 3 through 6. As a model of this prayer, that, uh, as a model of prayer, it, it serves us well. As we look through here, it clearly demonstrates a genuine confession involves taking responsibility. Write that down if you're taking notes. That a genuine confession involves taking personal responsibility. Five times in the first four verses, David uses a pronoun. It's a personal pronoun. It's for him. He says, my sin. Four Four verses, five times he takes responsibility for this. He claims personal responsibility for his own actions. He maintained through this whole time that he is the guilty party. Don't miss that. In his confession, he established this first, and yet it was the last thing that he wanted to do. It's one of the most difficult things for us to do, is it not, as humans, to 
to confess our sins, to truly take the blame, to admit that we have done wrong. So, so naturally, we want to defend ourselves. We want to defend our actions. We want to, to give some type of an excuse that this is why we did that, because of this or because of that or because this person did that, and David does none of that here. So true confession is not making excuses for what you've done. True confession before God is saying, I have sinned. This is what I've done. Even our father Adam, there at the beginning, what did he do? When he sinned, what did, God confronted him about that and he said, yeah, but the woman that you gave me, right? So many of us are still using that today. Mine actually is good reason. I have, I, no, I'm just kidding. But we take a true confession is taking responsibility for our own actions. It's difficult for us to admit our guilt, especially when we're not keenly aware of it, especially when we don't even see our own faults in the matter. And there's a warning here genuine confession, it, it involves admission of guilt. But then in verse 5, he, he mentions that. And he was conceived in sin. And it almost seems as if he's blaming his mom or his parents. I was conceived in iniquity. And sin was, was I born. And he's not casting blame. He's demonstrating the, exhaust, the expansiveness of this fallen nature that he is in. Even from the beginning, he says, from day one, from conception, I was a sinner and I loved it and I've chosen it. And I've done wrong time and time again, and each of these instances are my fault. David is not making excuses. He is taking the blame. He's demonstrating how deep this actually goes. He's saying this isn't an isolated event. We look at David and we say, hey, he's a great guy, and he's just messed up this one time. He He had a rough patch. No, David's saying that's not the case. From the beginning of my existence, I've been a selfish person. From the very beginning, I've served myself and not not the Lord. That's been the nature that he's had. Let me ask you this morning, are you there? Is that where you are at this morning? Recognizing your sin. Your sin. Not anybody else's. Are you taking responsibility for your own sin? Perhaps you don't see your sin this morning. It's the mercy of God to David that he would send Nathan the prophet to his very home, to knock on his door and to admit or to, to, to let him know that, he, that, that, that Nathan knew and that God was going to judge him for his sins. It was the mercy of God that that would take place. And perhaps you're here this morning and you say, I, my sin is not obvious to me. Nobody's knocked on my door. Nobody's told me face to face. And if that's the case, I would ask you, I would implore you to get on your face before God and ask him, to in his mercy reveal your sins to yourself so that you too could stand with David and say, I have sinned and these are my sins. That God would show you mercy and, 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 and remove the blinders and the confusion that you're wrapped up in, that, that you're some sort of a victim in this world and not the, and not the, and not the transgressor. So David's saying uh, exhaustively, I am a sinner. He goes on to say that his sin is ever before him, always in front of him. That language is quite vivid. Ever before me, he's saying this, that it's a daily occurrence. It's uh, every single hour. It's always confronting me. My sin is always accosting me with guilt, with condemnation. David says, I can't get away with it. Guilt and shame and anger and frustration at his sin. Oftentimes, I feel the same way about my sin. It's ever before me. All I can do is see my sin. And in some ways, that's not a good place to be. But initially, what a wonderful place to be. That the Lord in his mercy and his grace would reveal my sinfulness to me. So that I can in turn... Lay that before him and ask him to blot it out, to cover it. There's a difference between what I'm describing right here, what we're reading about David, and what we actually operate in. If I were to write my own prayer down, oftentimes it would look quite different. It would sound something more like this. For I know their transgressions. 
And their sin is ever before me. Against me, me only have they sinned and done what is evil in my sight. Do you catch that? That's my prayer so many times. God, I know their transgressions. Their sin's always before me. They're always sinning against me. They've done what's evil in my sight. Oftentimes as Christians, as human beings, we become so consumed with the wrongdoings of others. That's not what we see here. That's not confession. That's not what David's describing here. He's not saying I know what they've done. I think about it all the time. I can't stop thinking about their sins against me or against somebody else. David's not saying I'm the victim. He's saying, God, you have been accosted, that, that you have been rebelled against. How many times we prefer my version that I just read of the Psalms than we do of David's? Again, what sinfulness, what arrogance. That in the presence of God, we would point other people's faults out and not look for our own. Again, in God's mercy, would you lay before him this morning, asking him to reveal your sin. I think about the, the passage in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking. And he, 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 he tells them to, to before they begin to, to get the splinters out of other people's eyes, they should get the beam out of their own eye. In that, Jesus is not saying, hey, they don't have a, he's not saying, no, they don't have a problem, they're perfect. No, he's saying, hey, it's so much more important, isn't it? Don't you find it so much more of a priority to get the, the, your own sight fixed before you start removing the, 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 the sticks or the splinters or the specks out of other folks' eyes? This is genuine confession, personal responsibility, focused on your own sin and not the sins of others, not initially. And this is not to say that as a, as a church and as Christians that we shouldn't be concerned about the sin in our brothers' and sisters' lives. No, of course not. We've called to that. We've been called to that. We, we covenant together that we will do that. We will care for one another. And in love and in gentleness, we'll pursue one another's hearts, calling each other to repentance. And that's not, it's not saying don't do that. But first and foremost, are we, conf- are we, are we just destroyed by our own sinfulness? Or are we consumed with the sinfulness and the shortcomings of others? Genuine confession, taking personal responsibility. Genuine confession also includes brokenness over personal sin. David said his own sin was before him. Is this your prayer? Are you concerned? Are you longing for God to reveal to you the sins that are in your own life? Another thing that I notice is a genuine confession, or about a general confession is that it's primarily towards God. David uses some strong language here. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. He's making a point this morning. I've only, God, in comparison to those who have sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, in comparison to them, it's so much stronger, it's so much greater the sin that I've committed against you. And by the way, as we consider genuine confession being primarily towards God, Know this, that God already knows your sin. Remember, Nathan was knocking on the door. David doesn't want to let him in, but he does. And that is the day of salvation. David repents and he confesses. To who? To God. Don't wait. Don't wait for Nathan to come and knock on your door. Don't wait for a brother and sister to, 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 to see the sin that you're, that's in your life. Confess it now. Don't wait till the wheels fall off, so to speak, in your in your life. Confess it now. Today is the day of salvation. By the way, the way that you act towards God when you are found out in sin demonstrates your belief in him, what you truly believe about him. Maybe you're fooled into thinking that God doesn't care about sin. That he winks at it in some, some form or fashion that he looks over it and that's not the case. He's not that type of a God. He's not that type of a judge. What kind of a judge would he be? What kind of a God would he be if he winked at sin? No, that's not our God. Maybe you're lulled into thinking that God is not powerful enough to do anything about your sin, and that's not the case either. And so a genuine confession is primarily toward God, and we don't wait until we're found out. Confess it now. Bring these things to him even today, even this morning. But why would David put such an emphasis on confession to God? And not to Bathsheba or Uriah's parents. Why would he make why would he lift God up so high? He he kill he rapes Bathsheba. And then he murders her husband. Of course he's sinned against this lady. Of course he has. And yet 
David says, I've only sinned against you. The point he's making is this. At the end of the day, we have broken. David says, I have broken your law. And at the end of the day, I've sinned against a creature that has been created in your image, God. He says, I've sinned against you. First and foremost, God, I've, I've sinned against you. And so he confesses to God. So when we sin anytime, whether we sin against ourselves or our brother and sister or our neighbor, whoever it is, we are always sinning against God. We're always rebelling against him in that very moment. Our sin is always an affront to a holy God and not just to our spouse and not just to our children and not just to our neighbor. We've accosted God. We've rebelled against him. You don't hear what David's not saying. He's not saying in this moment that there's not a place in this world for apologies or confession to those who are our equals that we walk in life with. He's not saying that. Of course, we should confess our sins. We should admit our failures to our brothers and sisters, those whom we've sinned against. Don't use this as an excuse to, to avoid repentance, to cover up our tracks. It's not what David's saying here. When we sin against our brothers and sisters, we should quickly go to them and ask for for their forgiveness, especially in the church. Coveting and desiring that the unity of the brethren would be present here in this people. There's no excuse for that. At the same time, the hyperbole there is saying, God is not to be trifled with. And when we sin, we sin against him first and foremost. And David clearly sees his own sin. He clearly sees who it is against. It's against God. He takes full responsibility and he acknowledges the, the pervasiveness of that sin in his life that goes deeper than just this week or that, this year. It's at the very core of who he is. And in that moment as he confesses it, as he lays it all out, as God gives him this insider information to his own heart through the prophet Nathan and also just as the Holy Spirit works in his life, there's a danger there that he could be led to despair. And maybe even this morning as we talk about con- confession and sin in our lives, maybe you're tempted to do the same thing, to despair, to come to the place where you're just overwhelmed by the sin in your life. But that's not what David does. And so this is the next part of confession. This is the next part of uh, repentance and that prayer towards God is to anticipate the salvation that's coming. So look at verses 7 through 12 to anticipate the salvation that is coming. This is some of the stuff that we talked about, though. The wisdom of the, that God gives and teaches in the secret heart. There are things that we can only learn when we are leveled by our sin. There are things that we can only really truly obtain spiritually when we've been found out. And when we lay those things before God, we face them one by one. And so the gospel is first bad news, and then it's good news. It's first bad news in that we are going to be judged by God, and he does not wink at sin. But yet in that, as we confess, we're to anticipate salvation. So at this point, there's a huge shift in the language, and it's difficult for you to see it in the English language because most English Bibles don't actually translate these verbs in the exact form that they should. Uh, Actually, 7 through 10, all of these verbs, requests that David makes are actually not imperatives he's not asking God to do something he's actually saying thou shalt you will in some senses he's saying you've already begun he's not asking God to do something in this in this moment seven through ten he's claiming that God has already begun and that he will complete these things this is a beautiful thing there's a that transition is so clear instead of pleading will you he begins to have assurance that you will Literally, the first few words of, of seven should read, Thou shalt purge me. You will purge me. He's not bossing God around. He's claiming the truths that he knows of God already. He's, he's claiming them in real time. David's saying that it will happen. It's more of a prophecy than it is of a request. And that demonstrates the shift in David's mind. That boldness that he, that he has when he, when he comes to the presence of God. And he says, these are my sins. He, he has, begins to have a confidence now that raises up that God will do just that. And not because David is a powerful person. Not because David killed, God owes him a favor because he killed Goliath. No. In confidence that God will do what he's promised. Again, he's banking on that covenant faithfulness that God has given to him. 
It's a beautiful thing. Jocelyn will regularly ask, regularly ask me if we can go get ice cream. And at the moment, I don't want to make a decision. I don't want to crush her spirits. And so I'll just be- delay answering and I'll say, maybe. We'll talk about it. Really, what I figured out about her age was that that means no, uh, but they, they don't want to crush my spirits. And, and she hasn't figured that out yet. And so when I say maybe, not right now, she still celebrates and she cheers and says, yes, we might get it. You're telling me there's a chance. We might actually go get some ice cream. And oftentimes I do relent and we go and get the ice cream. But oftentimes we don't. And yet she still cheers. And that's not what David's experiencing here. He's not saying, maybe there's a chance we're going to go. There's a chance that you'll save me. There's a chance you'll forgive me. No, it's not that. He's with full confidence. I know that he will do what he's promised he will do. We can have that same assurance this morning. No matter what it is, no matter what we face, no matter how many times that we choose that same sin, that we fail our God, no matter how many times, Every single time I sin and I open 1 John up and I look at chapter 1, verse 9, it's still there. It still says that if I will confess my sin, he is faithful to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Now it's true confession, not fake, not false, not halfway, but if I truly will confess my sins, he will forgive me. That promises for you this morning. Don't leave that on the table. Claim it. It's a promise, not a maybe. He will do it. So God, in his mercy, he shows David the seriousness of his sin, and then he leads him to a return to health. Only the blood of a spotless lamb could do that, though. Only the blood of a spotless lamb could truly cleanse David and right what had been wrong. Just as only a pure lamb can atone, Only a pure lamb could could wash away those sins. Only a God, a creator God, only the God could create in David a clean heart. That same word there used for create is the exact same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1. Creating, making something altogether new. We can't do that. We don't have the the power, the ability to, to, one, wash away sin or to create a clean heart. So we see this combination of this spotless lamb that washes the sin away and this holy God that creates a new heart. And when we see these, these two things together, it almost sounds like John the Baptist as he looks to Jesus and he says, Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold the lamb of God that creates in us a clean heart, a new heart. The lamb of God, the lamb who is God. Jesus removes the stain of sin and creates a new heart in us. When God changes the heart, by the way, he changes the voice. When God changes the heart. He changes the voice. There's a truth that, that the Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 12. It's this. That whatever is in our heart, whatever, whatever our heart is, it will naturally come out. Whatever, whatever's down deep inside, it will naturally come out. It's a law. I'm going to read this passage to you. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 and onward to thir- down to 37. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? You can't say anything good because you're evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Heavy. It's heavy. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's saying you can't do anything about it. You can't say anything good. You can't, you can't do good. Why? Because you're not good. Your heart's far from me. Your heart is evil. And here there's a promise that we see. Well, it's heavy. There's a promise that, that the God who creates in us a clean heart gives us the ability and in a sense forces us to good works. It forces us to speak good. 
It forces our hands to be clean. Jesus says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. In the heart of hearts, that apple tree is an apple tree, and that's why it produces apples. And if you want the apple tree to produce oranges, it needs to be changed to be an orange tree. Some of you are talking or thinking in your mind, well, there's nowadays we can graft. Well, get, get out of here, right? The point is this, that out of our hearts, our mouth speaks. Out of our heart, our mouth speaks. And David is banking on this truth. Whatever's in his heart would eventually come out. He knows that. And so he positively declares. He promises his response. And why did he do that? Well, let's look at verses 13 to 17. So a promised response. David knows this. Only God can create a clean heart. And only a clean heart can respond in gratitude. Only God can create a clean heart. And only a clean heart can respond in and gratitude. And that's what we see David doing here. David promises that he's going to do three things. We'll look at him here in just a moment. He promises that he'll do three things. That he'll teach the sinners the ways of God. That he'll sing of God's glories and he'll declare his praises. It's very clear. David says, I'll do all these things, these things, these three things. But as you look through this passage, Psalm 51, David has actually asked God to do 16 things, 16 actions that make a difference. And he says, if you'll do those things, God, when you do these things, because you're doing these things, I will do these following things. Only a heart that's been clean can be respond in gratitude. Only a new heart. Only a clean heart, we also see, precedes a gospel witness. Only a clean heart precedes a gospel witness. Verse 13 states, then I will teach transgressors your ways then I will teach transgressors your ways it's absolutely beautiful how countless uh, how many times this has actually taken place after David's recovery after his repentance after his clean heart has been given to him how many people have actually come to faith and repented of their sins because of David's testimony even think of this in your own life Perhaps you've been a Christian for some time now. And imagine the, 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 the nourishment that you've received from Psalm 51, even this morning. Maybe the Lord is drawing you to himself through the testimony of David this morning. As David repented of his sin, and then he began to teach transgressors God's ways. This psalm has shown generations of sinners the way home, long after they had thought it useful. What a powerful truth. And David's testimony recorded here has pointed millions to God. And they've turned to him in repentance and faith. And David just spoke naturally out of this clean heart that he'd been given, that God had given to him. And the results were amazing. So no doubt it's been the same with you as a Christian. This clean heart that God has given to you, that out of that flows the abundance, goodness of the truths of God's ways. We talk a lot about hopelessness in Hagerstown. We talk a lot about need. I'm going to ask you a diagnostic question this morning. Do you naturally speak of God? And the things that he has done for you. Do you naturally speak of God and the things that he has done for you in your life? Do you teach sinners God's ways? I'm not making uh, any points other than I'll just lay that before you. David says, when I have a clean heart, I will teach sinners your ways. When I have been remade, I will evangelize. I'll lay that before you this morning. Is that you? Is that your story? If it's not, why? Have you forgotten the truths of the clean heart that God has given you? Have you forgotten the truths of how, how you came about to have that clean heart, that new heart? A clean heart, it precedes a gospel witness, and a, a clean heart is also joyful. A clean heart is also joyful. And don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying here. Joy is not happiness. Oftentimes we can have joy in, in the fact that we have hope. Joy leads to hope, doesn't it? Hope leads to joy. As we see that God is doing something even even greater than our circumstances in the face of danger, in the face of cancer, in the face of loss, in the face of pain, suffering. We have a peace buried deep down in our inner heart that God has given to us, a, a heart that says that this is not the way it will always be, that I will make all things new. 
And Christians are a singing people. We always have been and we always will be. And if you don't like that, then you've got problems because for eternity we will sing to our king. That's who we are. We have something to sing about because of the joy that we've been given, because of the hope that we have in Christ. So a new heart, a clean heart, is a joyful heart. There's a close connection between joyous faith and an infectious faith. There's a close connection between that joyous faith and that infectious one. That evangelizing heart and that joyful heart are closely related. This is what God wants from us, church. This is what he desires from us. He wants a heart that comes to him in humility, acknowledges its sinfulness and utter dependence on him. And as verses 16 to 17 point out, he doesn't want us to perform just the correct actions. He wants us to actually have the right heart. Don't miss that. So many times we, we come to confession, we do a half confession, not two confession, but we come to God in repentance. We offer some halfway confession and then we hope that God would receive that as we continue to do works and acts, whatever it is, serving in the church or, or prayers or maybe you feel like now that you've given a half confession, now that you can read your Bible and the Lord will be pleased with you. And he, God says, I'm not, I'll have none of that. He says, I'll have none of that. He wants far more than just right actions. He wants a pure heart. And when those two things aren't together, the Bible teaches us here in 16 and 17, he will not accept it. He will not accept it. What does God want from us? He wants a broken, humble spirit in addition to that sacrifice. But he wants the the heart to be in it first. He's emphasizing that the best of gifts that we can give to God are hateful to him without a contrite heart, without a broken spirit, humbled before him, dependent on him for forgiveness. He doesn't want any of that. So it's not one or the other as we think in our our culture as we read this text. It's both. And one precedes the other. You see, he wants the heart, but he also wants the hands then. He wants our hearts to be towards him. And he'll do that work. And then the hands will follow. So God delights in sacrifices when our hearts are pure and genuine and not the other way around. He wants both. A pure heart clean hands so when we see this take place the end of the psalm tells us that God will be delighted look at verses 18 and 19 David was running from God he was hiding his sin God sent Nathan as an invitation to stop to open up to confess and it was God's good pleasure to do so to David God does found pleasure in chasing after David calling him to repentance. David then asks God to wash and to cleanse him. And he closes his appeal here to God by calling him to do good because it's what God is pleased to do. Did you notice that? This entire, from the beginning, David makes an appeal. In verse one, he makes an appeal to God based on God's character. He's not asking God to do something out of his character. He's asking something that, to do, God to do something that's totally in his character. And not only that, but something that God delights in. We see here in verse 19, that God delights when his people repent, turn to him with pure hearts, with clean hands, sacrifice to him, and offer their right actions to God. He's absolutely delighted when this takes place. So it's not a presumption or nor is it untrue on David's part, and neither is it for us. God loves to do good to his people. And you say, well, where is that at? Verse 18 says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David says, do good to your people according to your good pleasure. God, you love to bless your people. You love to call us to repentance. Would you do that this morning? It's my prayer for this people. It's my prayer for this church. So what's the connection between Zion and Jerusalem and this church here today? Zion's always been a picture of the, of the place where God meets his people, where God's people dwell. It's a name for Jerusalem So as God builds up Zion, as he builds up Jerusalem, the place where he meets with his people there on the Temple Mount, it's transformed and and turned into this picture of of, of something more than just a, a, a geographical location. Zion is far more than that. Zion is the people of God. It's a city on a hill whose light cannot be hid. 
This, tr- this is true of us. We can pray this this morning. God, do good to Zion. Do good to your church. Do good to your people this morning. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. It's this verbiage that, that God is building up protection around his people. He's building up even the walls and the very temple. It's interesting that the New Testament refers to God's people, the church, as a temple. That he will build up. And that all of that, This church is founded on God alone, on Jesus Christ. And those who put their trust in that cornerstone, 1 Peter says, will not be put to shame. So would you this morning, would you call out to God in heaven that he do good to to Zion according to his good pleasure, that he would find continual delight as he has in the past and as he will in the future in building his people. God is pleased, church, when when we repent, when we turn to him, And it pleases him to lead us and cause us to that very repentance. Listen to that. That God is pleased when we repent, when we turn to him. And he's also pleased to cause it to happen. He's working in our church. He's working in our lives. Even the fact that you're here this morning would demonstrate this, that God is building his church in you. That he's building this repentance in you. So would you lay hold of that this morning? In true confession, would you lay it before the Lord, admitting where you've done, not blaming others, true, pure confession, I've sinned, God. No blame on anybody else. Would you place that before the Lord, trusting that because of the spotless lamb and because of our creator God, we can be cleansed, we can have new hearts. And in faith, would you trust and walk forward today in, in full confidence in these truths? Church, while running from God and covering your sin is natural, it leads to death. But running to God and confessing your sin, it brings salvation and God delights to give it. He delights to give it. And so church, run to God and not away from him. Would you pray with me? God, this morning we are encouraged as we look at your words this morning. As we look at this inspired uh, thought and, and prayer of David you would find delight in forgiving your people and that you would even cause us to do this. You've, you've led us to do this. No man here was seeking for you. No, man, no woman was seeking after you and no child is either. God, we were dead in our sins and yet you've come to us. Those of us who have repented and placed our faith in you, you've called us to that. You've brought us to that place and it was your good pleasure to do it. So God, we're encouraged by that. That you love us not because there's anything in us that's, that's lovable, but because you are great. Because loving us brings you glory and it brings you pleasure. And so we trust in that this morning. I call you to that again as David did. Find delight in us. Sanctify us. Bring us to repentance and hold us fast there in that place. And we will be sure to give you the glory for all that takes place as a result of these things. We pray them in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.